Turn with me to Philippians chapter 3, verse 1 through 11. As we continue on in our series called What Lies Ahead, uh, this is a series through Paul's letter to the Philippians, and we're uh, starting chapter 3. As you're turning there, uh, some of you may have missed the uh, last couple weeks, or maybe you're visiting us today. I just want to give you a quick recap. Um, Actually, not even a recap, just enough for you to understand where we're going to be going right now. You know, everywhere Paul seems to go, he 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 plants a church, and he's very apostolic in that sense. He's running around, and he's starting little groups, and those little groups flourish, but he doesn't stay there. He leaves other leaders in charge. He leaves a community there, but he does stay in touch with them by writing them letters, and so that's why you have Ephesians and Colossians and Philippians and Galatians and Corinthians and uh, so on and so forth. He's writing these letters to existing churches that he had started previously, Well, everywhere Paul seems to plant a church, there is this group of troublemakers that seem to follow him around. And if you've read the book of Galatians, you've kind of gotten that gist. If you've read 1 Corinthians, you you see all of this turmoil and angst and conflict and this like invisible group of people that he keeps addressing that's that's preaching a different message than him. Um, That's kind of... All you really need to know before we read this passage, let's read all uh, 11 verses together. And I'll start with verse 1. And Paul says this, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. This is God's word for us today. Heavenly Father, we... uh, We want a piece of that even right now. To refrain from putting confidence in our flesh, and that would mean everything from me preaching uh, to us listening. And we want to depend upon the supernatural presence of your spirit who gives so freely and graciously to broken, fallen, imperfect people So God, help us to just be still in the presence of God today and to receive not so much from a preacher, but from the Spirit who pours abundantly the love of the Father abroad into our hearts. For the person who's tired and weary, pray for strength. For the person who's empty, pray for satisfaction. 
For the person who's aimless, I pray for direction. For the person who just doesn't want to keep going, I pray for a sense of joy. All of these things we ask from the feet of our Lord Jesus Christ, in whom are all the treasures and wisdom. Ultimately, God, we want to be a people who who sit around and gather around, not a brand or a certain uh, list of religious doctrines or a particular speaker or a style of music or any of those things. We want to gather with like-minded people around Jesus Christ. And you've already done everything needed for that to happen, so we gather. And as we do, perhaps we don't even know what we're doing. Just do your thing. And we submit and we receive. In Jesus' name, amen. This group we've been talking about, it's been following Paul around. And all the churches that he's been a part of has been spreading what seems to be like a pretty harmless message in Paul's wake. What seems to be a harmless message is actually quite sinister, and it goes something like this. Um, Try to reenact what you might have experienced in Paul's day, but Paul comes in, starts a church around the gospel of Jesus, saying things like, Jesus is your all-sufficiency, it's all about Jesus, if you just uh, find your life hidden in Christ, in God, that will change everything. It's the abundant life of Christ. He leaves and in come uh, his uh, former Jewish comrades uh, steeped in Judaism and they would come around and they would say something like this. You know, they wouldn't do away with all of that. They'd say something along these lines. Yes, Jesus. Jesus is awesome. But you should also get circumcised. I mean, if you really want to fit into the people of God, you should probably look somewhat like us. So the, the bare minimum, I'd say, is circumcision. So yes, absolutely, Jesus, the gospel of Jesus, and circumcision. Spreading a message in Paul's wake, what seems harmless but is actually quite sinister, is this message, Jesus plus Judaism. And Paul, I don't know if this is already in the church in Philippi or if it's coming or if it was already there, doesn't matter. Paul seems at this point to be coming with a preemptive warning. Whether it's come, whether it's coming, he's already speaking about it. And this is really important for us today here in Santa Barbara. Uh, Especially because we've been talking a lot over the past few weeks about spirit-filled effort, right? Right? that this is not a passive journey, but that we are actually to participate in what the Spirit is doing. We just read this, uh, that verse in uh, Philippians 2, verse 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. There's effort involved. There's actually a life that we are abiding in and participating in. And so, Paul and we have been talking a lot about spirit-filled effort, and Paul right now is warning the church, I think, not about effort in general, but about effort in the flesh. And the two things seem so similar, and the lines between them can be so blurry, but they couldn't be farther apart in difference. And he starts off in the the first six verses with what we might call dead-end religion. Now, religion in itself isn't bad, right? I know we love to hate on religion, but religion inherently by itself is not a bad thing. Religion is just any time you take something of value and you do it over and over again, okay? It is organizing something that you value so that you can do it over and over again in a community. So, you're saying, I love to sing songs. Well, let's do that every week together, right? Religious, but not in the bad sense. And the Apostle James would even tell us that there is a religion that is pure and undefiled. It's good. That also means there's a type of religion that is bad, a dead-end type of religion. And Paul starts his little 
dialogue here with the Philippian church talking about dead-end religion, and he starts by saying, right there in verse uh, 2, look out for the dogs. Now, this is, Paul does fly into some insults periodically through his letters. It's always funny to me. But when he says dogs, this might escape us being Santa Barbans because we love dogs. There are dog hospitals and dog biscuit farms, and you can take your dog into the finest dining restaurant, and it's chill. And, you know, there's people with, like, bob strollers, and there's dogs in the, in the strollers, and you go into, like, Nordstrom, and there's someone with, like, a purse, and a dog's head, you know, jumps out. We love dogs. Um, but in, in first century Jewish culture, a dog was more like what a spider is for us. They hated them. Dogs were gross. They ate dirty things. uh, And it quickly became a metaphor for the Jewish people of Gentiles who did not fit into the people of God. So the Jewish, uh, the the religious elite and the Jewish uh, social elite would use that term, a dog, to refer to someone who didn't know God. Now, how interesting that Paul is calling those religious professionals the dogs. He's saying, well, actually, the tax collectors and the prostitutes and the outcasts and the marginalized and the poor, they're the true circumcision. You're the dogs. Then he goes in and he describes uh, a little bit why, uh, why that is. He says, look out. And he's not even talking to him. He's still talking to the church. He's saying, look out for them. Watch out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. Again, talking about the act of circumcision. And when he says flesh, he's not just, you know, he's not speaking merely about your skin and bone or your hair. He's speaking flesh in Paul's language usually refers to natural human ability apart from God's power. So it's anything you're able to do in your own power. Obviously, in this particular context, it was their national heritage. We belong to the Jewish nation, and it was cultural requirements like circumcision. In other words, this group came along and was going along telling people who discovered joy in Christ, and they were ruining their joy by saying things like, Jesus plus X, okay? equals your self-confidence. Now, for the Philippians in the first century, that would have been circumcision. Not so much for us, but we, we can easily fill in that second column, can't we? What is it for you? I don't think there's a lot of people in this building who would say, no Jesus. I think, like, most people in this theater would be like, Jesus is pretty awesome. Like, that's why I'm here. I want to learn more about him. I think he's all right. I think he's great. Some of you might even go so far as to say he's everything to me. It's not so much that column that's the problem. It's the second one. Jesus plus whatever it is that gives me a sense of self-confidence. And it probably looks different for everybody. I've got my own second column. What is it for you? Perhaps you would say, I love Jesus but I also feel like I have to hold it together, especially when I'm around other people who love Jesus, maybe emotionally. Maybe you're going through the worst time of your life, but you feel like you come on Sunday, you have to put on a certain veneer to look good. Jesus plus emotional perfection. Maybe it's not emotional, maybe it's uh, spiritual. Maybe you look at all of the stuff that we're reading in the Bible and you just see a list of to-dos. So it's for you, it's Jesus, yes, plus I got to do all of the right things, spiritually speaking. Got to cross my T's and whatever the rest of that saying is. I have like my list of things and I got to check them off. And if I don't, I don't, I'm robbed of joy, I don't feel like I have, I have measured up. Maybe it's something entirely different. Maybe it's something Uh, that isn't inherently spiritual or religious. Maybe it's your job. Maybe you're like, yes, I love Jesus, but my real joy comes from my 
ability and capacity to make it in this town, which means a certain amount of money, a certain house, a certain family, a certain surface veneer. Maybe you're a, a mom with kids, and you're just worn out, and you're like looking around, and like all these other moms have these blogs about how to be awesome moms, and like they feed their kids like healthy, and all they eat is kale, and their kids smile all the time and never cry and never even use the bathroom, you know? <laughs> and you're over here, and your house is falling apart. And so for you, maybe the struggle is like, yes, Jesus, and being a perfect mom or a perfect dad, or a perfect college student, or perfectly on mission for the kingdom of God. Whatever it is, might look different for all of us, but it's that second column that you fill in to give yourself that sense of self-confidence. And I just want to follow up with that. Whatever is in that second column for you, ask yourself this question just very honestly. If you've been doing that for a certain amount of time, aren't you just tired? Isn't it just tiring to keep up that second column? Maybe you're trying to keep up that, you've been trying to keep up that second column of to-dos and to-bes so much, you've forgotten completely about the first one. And so, uh, where it might have started, yes, Jesus plus this supplement, it's actually turned itself on its head, and you're mostly about this column of whatever it is. This is what I do, this is who I am, this is what I look like. And you've fallen into this dead-end religion. Isn't that what it feels like after a while? For the parents who are trying to be perfect parents, aren't you tired? For the, those who are trying to be religiously elite, aren't you tired of that now? Has any of it given you the joy that you were hoping it, that it would give you? Has any of you come away from the religious schedules and the religious requirements going, I am so full of life from this? The pressures that I have accumulated over the past five years. I feel so good right now. I don't know about you, but I've done these things. I do these these things. And it breaks my spiritual back. It sucks my soul dry. And if I continue to do it, if I continue to live that way, like that's the best thing I've got going on, it leaves me Quite frankly, wondering, I thought Christianity was about the abundant life. Why do I feel so emaciated by this? Maybe that's where you're at right now. Because no matter how hard you try, whatever is in that second column, no matter how hard you try, you can never measure up, even if it's your own standard. And I think this is a point that Paul is also trying to drive home. He's speaking to these people and he's saying, hey, listen, first of all, you shouldn't put any confidence in your flesh, but even if you did, you'll never be as good as I was. And if you're never as good as I was, you, you never, you're not as perfect as you thought you were. If you can't even measure up to me, then you're still lacking and you still have more to go. And he goes through one of the most stunning lists of accomplishments, background, pedigree, and ability that you see in the entire New Testament. Paul is saying, hey, if these dogs and evildoers and mutilators of the flesh, these religious elite were right, I would beat them. They can't even measure up to me in my former years. And then he begins to describe one of the most stunning self-depictions and self-portraits in the Bible there is. He says, listen, if you want to just go round for round for fleshly uh, abilities and uh, 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 strength in the flesh, I have far more than any of them and any of you. I was circumcised on the eighth day. That's like saying I grew up in the church, baptized as a baby or whatever and grew up in the church. He goes on to say, I was of the people of Israel. In that day, right, the people of Israel, being God's covenant people that were chosen amongst many nations, they were special. 
he was in a sense saying, I belong to the right group of people. For us, maybe it's, I go to the right church. Or something special is happening in my community. I'm in the right community. That's where God is moving. Or maybe it's not church at all. Maybe it's, I go, I, I'm, I'm an American. It could be a list of different things, a list of different privileges that you have that give self-confidence. He goes on and says, not only is he of the right group of people from an earliest age, but he's of the tribe of Benjamin. That was the most noble, one of the most noble of tribes in the 12 tribes of Israel. So he was a pedigree. He was a thoroughbred. He was of the elite of the elite country, right? He was the top of the top. Not only was he of the tribe of Benjamin, he also says, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. In the first century, the Jews in that day had been... Uh, or actually the, that, that culture in that day had been so accommodated and accultured to Greek uh, culture and society that even, even the Jewish people lost uh, their mother tongue. They didn't speak Hebrew. They spoke Greek, case in point. Paul and Peter and all the apostles are writing books in Greek, right? And a lot of these Jewish people lost a sense of their mother tongue. They lost some of that cultural depth and wealth. And Paul is saying, I never did. I'm writing to you in a tongue that you understand, but I have maintained. I am unadulterated in my cultural appreciation, a Hebrew of Hebrews. So not only has he been in it his entire life, in the right group of people, in the right tribe or clique in that group of people, but he's the best of the best. And he's not just the best of the best in theory only. He is zealous and he is active. He's what you might call a social activist. As to the law, he says, I'm a Pharisee. A Pharisee was essentially that small, tiny group of people that looked at the law of God that was so overwhelming at times, 618 commandments or 13, 613, and they said, we're going to do them all, and we're going to do them all without fail. These were the people who looked at the, looked at the Old Testament scriptures at things like tithing, and they said, I'm not just going to give 10% of my income, I'm going to give 10% of my spice rack. And this is the very thing that Jesus hounds them for because they're over here taking like the dill and the cumin and the rosemary and just like just scraping off 10% of everything they have. They were so obsessed with doing all the right things and they were pretty good at it. If you had to look at someone in society who is doing all the right things in the law, this would have been that group. Paul is saying, none of you guys are Pharisees. If this is the criteria we're going by, I got you beat. Not only a Pharisee, but a zealous one who persecuted the church. The t- this isn't just someone who preaches and talks about the right thing, but also tells all the people doing the wrong thing that they haven't measured up. And he ends this stunning list of achievements by saying, as to righteousness found under the observance of the law, I am blameless. Paul is saying, hey, if your confidence is in your flesh, you're not even as good as I am. If that's, if that's the criteria that you are setting up for yourself, the things that you do for God and other people, in order to give yourself a sense of self-worth and self-confidence, you haven't even made it halfway to where I am. Then, in a stunning turn of events, it's almost as if Paul is looking at those people and us, all of us with our full second columns of religious activities, to free us from the burden that we have put on ourselves. And he says, I have quite a resume, but whatever gain that I had, I now count it as loss. He's using this bookkeeper accounting language, right? You can almost hear in Paul's imagination saying something like, you know, all of these years I've accumulated this right behavior because I thought it was crediting to my account something before God. 
Now I look back on all of that religious activity and it was actually a liability. It actually kept me from God. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss. And now he goes into true freedom and the true value of Christianity when he says, whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ in verse seven. In other words, none of his accolades, none of his abilities are anything without a personal, interactive relationship with Jesus Christ. Paul is saying, if there is a way of achieving righteousness through behavior modification, I think I would have gotten there before anybody, but I'm telling you right now, I did it and it left my soul dry and hungry, and I would be willing to give up all of that for the sake of knowing where that real, satiating, abundant life comes from, and that is Jesus Christ. And he'd go even a step farther. Not just my religious resume. Everything in life pales in comparison to knowing Christ. And he even says, he even uses this word in verse 8. He says, uh, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ my Lord. Uh, it's for his sake I have uh, suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Seeing that behavior modification, the way that I try to present myself the things that I try to change in my own life by my own strength, the veneer that I set up to look a certain way for people, for myself, for God, now I consider it to be rubbish in the face of knowing what I've discovered in Jesus Christ. When he says rubbish, he uses this Greek word called skubalon. Say that with me, skubalon. That is a Greek cuss word for human excrement. You all just cussed in church. So did Paul. He's digging into his crude vocabulary in order to express to religious people that the things that we do in our obsessive religiosity are like human excrement. And he uses the strongest terms in order to do that in the face of knowing Jesus Christ. He's, do, he's drawing a comparison here. He's not saying religion, remember what we talked about, is inherently bad, nor studying the Bible or doing right things. He's saying apart from their grounding in a relationship with Christ, those things might as well be rubbish. Scubalon. Without a deep, thriving life in Jesus, those things are actually losses. Even the most admirable, admirable religious activities, even the things that the world would consider success and triumph and victory, apart from a relationship that thrives with Christ, those things are losses and liabilities. And it seems that even in Paul's perspective, apart from Jesus, even those good things will cheapen my life and drown my soul. But for Paul... He discovers something far more worthwhile than religious motions and correct answers and checking the right boxes and trying to fit into an elite spiritual group, and he describes it as the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus. And when Paul says to know Jesus, he's not speaking about information about Jesus. The word that he uses here is not about data. Like if you have uh, data or information about somebody, like you know when they were born, you know their social security number, which is creepy, you know, but like that type of data, that's not a real relationship. Paul is speaking not here about information, but relational experiential knowledge of somebody else. And he's speaking in terms of Jesus Christ. And my question for all of you is, do you have that? I don't care how many times you read the Bible or how much scripture you've memorized. I truly don't at the end of the day. Or your percentage of church attendance or how much about God you know or who you've evangelized. Do you know Jesus in the way that Paul describes, 
that is the only important thing. Now look at the, the words. If Maybe you're, you're asking yourself, I don't know what that looks like. Look at the ways that Paul describes an interactive relationship with God. He says, uh, knowing Christ in verse 8. Again, a personal experience and an intimate relationship with Jesus. And then he goes on in verse 8 to say, and, uh, and gaining Christ. That speaks of an exchange of your life for somebody else's life. You're not knowing Christ from afar, but he has come close, and you're exchanging all that other stuff for the surpassing worth of knowing him. In verse 9, he captures all of that by saying, being found in him. There's that word, that union word that we keep using. Union being that the, the best word that we have in our vocabulary to describe one of the closest relationships possible with another person. Knowing somebody intimately, so intimately that you can be described as being in them and they in you. This is what Paul has with Jesus. And it's from that place that Paul is able to experience the love of God in Christ. Simply, what does he say? May I be found in Christ not by having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. His deep relationship and experience of God in Christ comes simply by trust in the Messiah. It has absolutely nothing to do with his behavior. It has absolutely nothing to do with his pedigree or where he came from, or where he's going, or what his life looks like, or how good of a parent he is, or how much money he makes in a year, or how good his church attendance looks, or how plugged in and and, and involved in the life of the church he is, or any of the list of things that we heap upon ourselves to make us feel confident in the presence of God. Paul says, I've done all of that stuff, and it's rubbish in comparison to the real thing. The real thing is, I get to experience the love of God in Christ, and I did nothing for it. Do you have that? Do you have a personal, interactive experience with Jesus Christ? Can you describe it in that way? Is it a lived experience for you? Do you spend time with Jesus where he interacts with you and you interact with him and you are led by him in in various decisions in life? Not just the outwardly spiritual and religious, but all of them. How you spend your time and the, the words that you say and where you go and what you adore and love and things that you avoid and, and things that you spend your money on and things that you spend your life on interacting with the Spirit of God in you. Is that what your life with Jesus is like? Is it so personally interactive that when you go for a period of time without it, you feel the weight on your soul? Some of you might be feeling the weight on your soul from all the religious activity. The beautiful thing about a relationship with Christ is that we feel a weight on our soul when we have avoided him. Because so deeply does our spirit long for his spirit. That to go for too long without communing with him begins to show up. But is that, is that what your Christianity is like? Now your answer might be no. And maybe you wouldn't even say that out loud here because you, you're in a church, you're a Christian, you're with other Christians, and creeping in from that second column is this shame and desire to look right and speak right. I don't care about those things. I care about people who have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. And if your answer is no today, I don't want you to be ashamed or feel guilty or run out with a sense of hopelessness. I want you to face the problem for what it is. And understand that we can't get very far until we recognize how deeply we have fallen. And if your life can only be described as something that is 
a religious shell, you need to face that sad reality right now before you can be pulled up out of it. And admit to yourself, I have made it all about the second column. I have made it all about my activity and my productivity and my success and my busyness and my hurriedness and my accolades and what I'm able to accomplish. And I have a whole list of things in that column and my spiritual life is emaciated. And I want you to face it for what it is and to begin to feel, feel the hunger within you start to well up inside. You know what that is? That's not me. That's not you either. That's the Spirit of God interacting with your deepest desires. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Interact with your hunger. You can't do it if you're pretending like you're full. And if you've been spending years chasing after religious shells and behavior modification, you might be starving and not even realize it. Face your hunger for what it is. Because for those who are hungry and thirsty, the gospel for you is the best news you have ever heard in your life. And the gospel is not if you do all of these religious things, you will be full. It's if you're hungry. I'll fill you. Jesus in John chapter 7, verse 38, I think we have it on screen. I love how this is voiced in the, the NASB. He goes into a crowded uh, festival in the middle of downtown, and he says, anyone who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost, innermost being, this is not behavior modification, from the deepest part of you will flow rivers of living water. If you could just keep that on the screen for like five hours, that'll be great. Or at least until the next slide or whatnot. Just look at that. This is the words of Jesus. Can you just, do you believe that? Whoever believes in Jesus from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Do you believe that? That that's for you? That when Jesus says stuff like this, that the thief has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I have come that you might have life and have life more abundantly. Do you believe that that's what Christianity is supposed to be like? Are some of you tired and oppressed? And maybe you even feel that from Christianity. You're reading this in disbelief. And I'm asking you, do you believe that? This is from the words of Jesus. This is promised to every single person in this building. That in Christ, that is yours. That abundant life and deep living water, supernatural love of God, spilling out of your heart into your behaviors and into your social circles. It's like a fire hose. It's like the storm we've been encountering. Nobody could make that happen. It overflowed out of the sky and nobody can stop it. That is what Jesus is describing about your heart. That's what your heart was made for. Your heart was made with the capacity to overflow with abundant life so that it cannot be stopped. This is your destiny. Do you believe that? Maybe some of you are having a hard time because you have not tasted abundant life. You cannot describe your religion as rivers of living water flowing out of you. And I want to say to you that this is what you are called to. This is the good news of the gospel. This is what he promises to you. And he doesn't promise it to pastors, to monks, and to the spiritually elite. He promises it to the spiritual zeros in the world. When Jesus said, blessed are the, the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to them. 
Even our second column thinking even makes us think about that as, oh, I guess that's something I need to do in order to receive the kingdom. Okay, I will be spiritually poor right now. He's not saying this is another behavior that you need to do in order to get good with God. He's saying the kingdom of heaven has come to people that are already like that. Dallas Willard had a phrase for uh, poor in spirit. He called it spiritual zeros. Blessed are the spiritual zeros. In other words, blessed are those who just don't know a lot of theology. They don't pray very good. They come into church and everybody's just getting in the spirit and they're all off in the back just like, I'm not feeling it. I don't get it. I'm struggling with this. I can barely pay my bills. I can't siphon up the same passion that so-and-so is doing. I don't know all of the right answers and I keep falling and stumbling and making mistakes. Jesus is saying to people like that, blessed are you because you're just the type of person that rivers of living water can satiate. It's often the spiritual elite who have no need for somebody like Jesus. And it's the poor, in spirit and economically, who look at Jesus and say, yeah, I can see how that would make sense. Paul is saying right now, if I can massively paraphrase him, hey, listen, I've done it all. But I've tasted of that river and I'll give up anything for it. In fact, I have. If you're in a spot where you feel like your spirituality, maybe you can't even be called a spirituality, maybe you're like, it's, it's a dead-end religion. If you're in a spot where you feel like you're spinning your wheels, and you're tired, and you're empty, and you're broken, and you want more, and you see verses like this, and you're like, that is compelling, and I want that. And you're asking yourself, what do I need to do in order to experience that? No need to do anything. That's the point. Paul goes on to say, which we just read, I am found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from works of the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. That personal interactive life with Jesus that comes simply by trusting the Spirit, not by anything you do. That might sound very strange to you because we've been speaking for weeks about practices and disciplines, right? We're memorizing Scripture. We're spending time in solitude and silence. We're praying we're reading the Bible, we're doing things. And we just read that, that passage that says, work out your salvation, work hard. But remember the second line, for it is God who is at work in you to work and to will for his good pleasure. When we experience union, union with God, it is no longer just us working in the flesh. It is God working and us participating with the work that God is already doing. There's a huge difference. Anytime we are practicing or doing a discipline of any sort, when we are doing it in a spirit-led sense, we are simply posturing ourselves to receive from his hand. That's a good, that's any good spiritual discipline. It's not doing something to to impress God or other people or ourselves. It's posturing ourselves to receive from God. Think of the most helpless creature on the face of the planet. Think of a newborn infant. I used to have two. They're slightly more adaptive. But when they were first born, they couldn't do anything. They couldn't even do the very things that were required to keep them alive. When my son and daughter, Jude and Abby, were born, they couldn't even eat food. 
And in those beginning stages, you could, you could set a pile of the most delicious food on the ground right next to their head, and that newborn infant wouldn't be able to eat it. Even if they were able to eat it, it's not, it's, it's too solid. It's not, they don't even have the bottle, bodily capability of eating that food. They had to start off small with milk and maybe formula, maybe later as they grow older, something like applesauce. But even in those initial stages, they can't even bring the food to their mouths. Brianna had to bring the food, maybe in a bottle, to uh, uh, Abby and Jude's mouth. In some cases, they couldn't even open their mouth. Brianna had to open their mouth and stick the bottle in mouth. And only then did those natural tendencies of sucking and drinking and swallowing come into play. Now think of, an, think of an example like that. A newborn infant who can do nothing. Drinking milk. And if that makes sense to you, that's like a spiritual discipline. There's nothing that you and I can do for ourselves. We can't even nourish our own souls. Only Jesus Christ can do that. Sometimes all that's left for us is to posture ourselves in a position where we can just receive the nourishing milk of God's word and his spirit. And like a newborn baby, sometimes all we can do is receive of the grace of God. That's a good spiritual practice. Getting to a place where you can say, I can do nothing apart from Christ. Whatever you have to give me, I'll take it. And so when you do things like memorize scripture, A, uh, a bad religious way of doing that might be being, you know, if I memorize enough scripture, I'll feel good about myself, and God will feel good about me too, and then he'll bless me. But if you wanted to do it like a newborn baby, you might say something like the Apostle Peter, where else can I go? You alone, Lord, have the words of eternal life. I just want to hear you. I want to hear you so bad. I want it to be in my memory. You might say, well, I'm going to come to church because if I do that, God will bless me and he'll think well of me. And plus, I sinned a lot. I said a lot of Greek cuss words, especially at church that one day. So I'll just come to church five times and that will kind of even the score. But if you were to do it like a newborn baby, you would say, I just want to be around like-minded people who are being baptized into the life of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit through beautiful routines together. Because I just want more of Jesus. You might say, well, I, uh, I want to pray. It's been like a month since I've, taught, uh, I've prayed. I better do that. And already there, you're feeling that sense of guilt. Like if you don't say the right things to God, he's going to love you less. But praying like a newborn baby would be like saying, I just, my soul is hungry. And the only person who can satisfy that hunger is God. I just want to spend time with him. Maybe you don't even have words to say, and so you spend time in solitude and silence. No words, no accomplishment, no behavior, no action. And you just sit and you receive. If you're wondering, am I doing things out of a sense of religiosity? Ask yourself these questions. Is it resulting in your joy? Or is it drying out your soul? Are you doing it out of guilt and obligation because you have to? Or are you doing it because of a love that is is bursting from your heart for Jesus? Is it life-giving or soul-draining? Ask these questions. And you might find, yeah, I'm, I'm memorizing scripture with the church because I feel pressured to do it. Well, brother, sister... I would tell you right now, stop doing it. Maybe you're like, I'm doing this and this activity. I'm serving. I'm doing that thing. I'm memorizing scripture. I'm showing up to prayer meetings. I've been doing them all out of a sense of guilt and obligation. Stop doing them. Now, if you're like, everything Christian in life is soul-sucking to me. I'm just not going to do anything spiritual. That might reveal, you know, a deeper problem. But that's okay. Jesus is all about getting to people's hearts and finding out what their deepest desires are so that he can meet them personally. Sometimes 
It just starts with us asking questions. Paul tells us, for the person who has faith in Christ and wants the surpassing worth of knowing him, what lies ahead for us is complete transformation, being conformed to Christ from the inside out. In his death, in his resurrection, in his life, that is the goal. And depending on your power in this life will absolutely ruin your experience of Jesus. So I'm going to ask the, ask the worship team to come up this morning. And as we do it, just begin to allow the Holy Spirit to examine your own heart and do it with him. And maybe you can ask questions like this. Where is my self-confidence? Where am I looking for joy? Where am I looking for rest? If I didn't have this thing, if I didn't do that thing, if I wasn't like this person, would I crumble as a result of losing it? And there you have your second column. If it's anything for, uh, besides Jesus, you've got your second column. And listen, no guilt or shame or condemnation here. Just an invitation to take the entire mess of rubbish in your second column and to lay it at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross and rose from the get- dead not to make you a behavior-modifying religious scholar. He gave up everything so that you would know him personally and be changed in him from the inside out. If you want rivers of living water flowing from the deepest part of you, it starts by laying those feet at the cross where Jesus died. There's a little bit of space on the floor if you like to worship in that way. And there's a bread and a cup at both sides of the building, also upstairs on the mezzanine floor, if you want to remind yourself that it was truly a work of God towards you, that you are saved. Some people to the either side, also upstairs, that would love to pray for you, you can look for the lanyard, or you can just go to some random person and ask them to pray for you, that works too. But you can look for the lanyard, people who are filled with the Spirit, who would love to serve you by praying for anything that you need. But you know, this is a time when we sing for 25, 30 minutes. It's not to fill up space in our Sunday mornings. It's, it's again to posture ourselves as weak people who truly have nothing to offer and who have realized that. And there's a joy in realizing that. And we're coming together as one group of people and we're saying, God, I have nothing to offer you. And so I have nothing left to do except to receive who you are and what you have. So wherever you're at today, receive the good gift of God in Christ. You are loved, you are pursued, and you are desired. And the God of heaven and earth has battled Satan and his demons. Death and shame and sin. The grave and even reigns victorious over the universe, all for the express purpose of coming after you. What are you going to do with that?